Hello there. Thank you for listening. This is Teresa. And this is Ty. And we're talking movies with Ty and Teresa. This is our our first... The inaugural episode. Yeah. And so for this one, we've decided that we're going to talk about the movie Casablanca, which we're both really big fans of. And even have a daughter that we named after... Ingrid Bergman's character. So I, I think that means we are experts. Absolutely. That's the, the foremost the authorities on Casablanca. Okay, so do we want to just jump right in with some details about the movie when it was... Created? When it was made? Yeah. Uh, it was made in... It was released in the beginning of 1943, directed by Michael Curtiz. It was written by... Uh, it was based on an unpublished um, play, uh, and the screenplay was written by um, several different people. Um, I, I believe two brothers uh, named Epstein. I probably better look this up. But um, Howard Coach worked on it for a while, and then Howard Coach. Should I know that name? No. No. Okay. Sorry, Howard. Yeah, Julius and Philip Epstein worked on it afterwards. They had... Uh, Unfortunate last name. Yeah, well, they had worked on uh, a World War II sort of propaganda documentary series that Frank Capra was working on. Um, but then when they finished up their work there, they came and sort of finished um, Casablanca. Uh, I don't know that much about the screenwriting process. I know it, you know, it was... Written by several people, there may have been other people, other contributors as far as like dialogue or script doctoring, I'm not really sure. I think that that is one of the things that I recently learned, and I don't know if many people would know this, is that the movie, which um, I would say was pro the U.S., maybe getting in into involved in the war and World War II, and, um, or at least pro-stopping Germany, um, that I did not realize that the movie, during the time when they're talking about occupied France and all that, that that was actually happening in real life at the time. I, I guess I always assumed the movie came after World War II. Uh, it didn't come after World War II, but it did come after um, America's involvement with World War II. Um, it was... Uh, I would say it is at least partially a political allegory for American involvement in World War II. There's a so the night that Rick is in his cafe or bar or whatever you want to call it, um, drinking himself stupid, waiting for Ilsa to come and sort of explain why she left or what's going on. Um, he mentioned at one point that. Um, it's December 2nd, 1941. And it's like, what time do you think it is in America? I bet they're asleep all over New York City and all of that. But, I mean, like, very sort of clear, like, you know, often get that sort of dating of a movie. December 2nd, 1941. That's exactly when this is taking place, which is five days before Pearl Harbor. You know, five days before America is pulled into World War II. Prior to that, it was kind of seen as, this isn't our fight, this is Europe's war, 
Um, we're going to stay out of it. came out in 1942. The movie came out at the beginning of 1943. But oh, that's not it? when it was set. I gotcha. Uh, I guess I thought that the movie came out in 1942, meaning that when it was written, it was prior to the U.S.'s involvement, and that made it... That was why I thought it was... I don't know, maybe revolutionary. It was written before America's involvement, but the movie came out after, like substantially after, about a year after America's involvement. Uh, normally, under typical circumstances, I don't think that the producers would want to date the film like that. They would want to make, make it seem more current. Uh, I think that date and the audience knowing that it was set before America was involved in the war is important um, because I think it's sort of mirrored and rick's sort of passivity um you know the whole film is kind of him uh being kind of brought back into action yeah i think we should maybe put out a disclaimer at this point that if if you have not seen it if you haven't seen any of the movies that we are going to talk about throughout our podcast that um you probably should watch them before we talk about them because there'll be spoilers um for instance, I would say, um, really curious, I would love to know what it is that Rick did that <clears throat> he is not allowed back into the U.S. I, I just really would like to know. I, I feel like, you know, he's our hero, but I also, I'm like, what you do? What did you do? <laughs> did you do it? Yeah, you only Chicago get that reference. brief little... Um illusion, uh, kind of innuendo uh, from Captain Reno when he was speculating, because he doesn't know why he's exiled either. Um, yeah, I don't think the audience is told because it's not particularly important. It's only important that he can't go back, not why. But, yeah, it does I don't know, stoke curiosity. Right, it is very um, I don't know, That that is one thing that you watch kind of hoping they're going to tell you, and then it's never really given given away. Um, so I think that that would be a major question. That If we had like a little sidebar over for unanswered questions, that is one. Um, I think that this movie has a lot of quotable lines. Um, what do you think is the most quoted line out of the movie? Um, probably, here's looking at you, kid. Um, or possibly, that's not really a quote because it's not actually said in the movie, but play it again, Sam is a famous line that is never actually said. Oh, see, and I would have said that I thought the most famous line was, this looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And that's a big one, too. Yeah. Um, and then maybe the whole, out of all the gin joints in the whole world, I always mess that up. But I feel like I have been in a bar somewhere when I was backpacking around Europe that that was written in there. And I was like, that no, sounds sure. familiar, no. but I couldn't, I didn't, I hadn't watched the movie at that point. Um, but I think I'd seen it also in like a Looney Tune, like a Looney Tune. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things where, um, I mean, if you see it late in life, then like half the dialogue you've already heard. Right. And I feel like that was everywhere. me where I was, Hearing line after line after line, and it was like, oh, wait, that's, that's where that's from? That's where it's that's from. That's where that's from? He's looking at you, kid.
sad. She doesn't get to be with the man she loves. The whole movie, I think, is weird because when you get to the end, um, it's a lot of people not getting what they want. <laughs> you know? Well, it's people, for the For the betterment of... It's people sacrificing what right. they want for a greater cause. I think love and sacrifice would be the thing... If you ask people to just narrow this movie down to one word, that those would be two words that would be um, maybe Nick and Nick in how many people said them. Um, I still want to wrangle with the fact that um, the sliminess a little bit, uh, like, that... I don't know how you would put it, but Captain Renault's character is a slime ball. And yet at the end, it's him that is the real hero that saved everybody. If it wasn't for him, the movie would have ended horribly. But he's a slime ball. So there's that that element there. And, I, and it's also weird because I think you know he's a slime, slimy guy as far as like kind of pervy. He also seems really sympathetic to the Germans or overly kiss-ass. I don't know what the word is um, until the end where you can see, I guess he kind of takes a stand and he actually isn't certainly seeing less on their side than you would have thought he would be. Well, um, he's not really the one that saved everybody at the end uh whenever the german officer i forget his name was trying to have the plane stopped or shot down uh bogart or rick blaine shoots him before he can give the command um so captain reno covered up for rick blaine but he didn't really have anything to do with the uh ilsa and um Paul Henry's character, what's his name again? Victor. Victor. Right, right. Victor Laszlo. Uh, it didn't really have anything to do with them getting out. And the only reason why there was any hubbub at all is because instead of calling to make sure that there was no issue with them getting off the ground, he called the Germans and said, and whenever he was supposed to be saying, eh, there should be no trouble with this, he actually called the German officer who then was like, what the fuck? Um, and so that's all the reason why he went down there. Um, but yeah, he's definitely a slime ball, but a slime ball that, uh, I don't know, because he's Claude Rains and because he's so sort of fun, um, the audience still kind of likes him. Um, and then, yeah, at the end, <clears throat> he's not, I mean, he's, yeah, he's a German kiss ass but not because he's sympathetic to the Nazis. It's because he's under Vichy role. Uh, like, Casablanca at that time was a French territory, and they were under the control of Vichy France, who, you know, they had signed an armistice with the Nazis and were basically... So they were technically neutral. They weren't like a puppet regime of the Nazis, but... They weren't want to stoke any anger... They were basically, um, I mean, the Nazis were calling the shot. Like, in, Yeah, you could see that. He right. Was... So in Casablanca, that's sort of a microcosm for Vichy France. 
you know, where technically Captain Reno was in control, but the Germans were the ones that were actually calling the shot. Right, and he seemed to go out of his way to make them feel like that. Well, I mean, that's just the way it was. Well, I feel like a big part of the slime ball for me, first of all, in a way, that whole element of the slime ballness with the German, where he's seeming kiss ass, seems forgivable because it's almost as though you are in this position to do the greatest good when it's possible. So, like, if I mean, if he had spat in their face, he wouldn't be there to save Rick from. And I do think that the 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 plane would have been shot down and stuff if if he had stopped. Like. I don't think the movie would be as happy if he hadn't been there at the end, you know. So, um, yeah, it does seem like, well, he's actually using that position. He's just biding his time to use the position for the greatest good. However, he also used that position to elicit sexual favors out of people for visa documents, which is disgusting. So it's also having that part. There's a little bit of... I don't want to like that guy, but if you, that guy wasn't there, Rick would be dead. Or You know what I mean? Like, ah, you can't just be 100% bad so I can hate you. Because I don't like those conflicting feelings. Like, I, I would just really wish that he was a decent guy who didn't elicit sexual favors out of women, you know, for sure. out of his power status. It's very gross. It's very gross. Um, part. I wonder how that actor felt about that. Like, I bet he was like, gross. <laughs> right? Like, ew, I have to play this. Uh, I mean, Claude Rains is a world-class actor. Um, I kind of doubt that was a huge um, issue for him. I mean, he played tons of different kinds of characters. I mean, he played a literal Nazi in Notorious. I would say, though, like, I guess it doesn't, it just happens no matter what the person is and things. But up until that point, if you hadn't seen that part of that character, that character actually seemed pretty charismatic and good looking. And like he didn't need to, to twist people's arms and use his power uh, to get, like it just didn't seem like, um, it, it just seemed like weird, like really that guy can't get a date on his own. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, he probably could have, but this option was available to him, and so he was like, eh, why not? I'm just surprised that he, it's, that's a very risky thing. Like, somebody, some angry husband could come back later and kick your butt. Like, I would come kick your butt. Um, so what about, um... Oh, man, I can't think of his name. The weasel that killed the two German soldiers to get the... Uh, uh, Ugardi. Ugardi. Uh, uh, it was played by Peter Lorre. Oh, yes. Peter Lorre's character, who <laughs> is also in and of himself, I think, somebody that you would have seen imitated throughout your life. Oh, yeah. And not have known it was him. I have saw many cartoons where it was clearly him, like, an imitation, or maybe even him. It was very often parodied. Um, do you think you could do a imitation? Uh, not a very good one. Uh, you hate me, don't you, Rick? 
(laughs) (laughs) I think that was great. Um, Yeah, I think that that relationship with him, um, it's, I mean, he's clearly only shown for... For the fact that they needed those visa documents or those travel documents, so they created this character for that. Um, that's another thing, though, that it puts that questionable mark on uh, Renault, Captain Renault, because it seemed like he killed that guy or uh, had him killed. Yeah, well, he was complicit. And his death, whatever happened, is not totally explained. Um, it seems odd, though, because if if he didn't have the travel documents on him, killing him seems counterintuitive. How are you going to find out where they are? You kill him before you get... I mean, he easily could have said, I gave him to Rick. Yeah. Which apparently everybody knew Rick had yeah, him everybody anyway. Everybody suspected. Um, it just seems like, what, you killed the guy? I may have. Killed him during interrogation, you know, trying to get the information out. So of there's him. a lot of like, it's weird. It's all these like little dark things, you know. But when I watched the movie, I, I didn't feel like super heavy about it. But then you look back and I'm like, dang, there's some heavy, heavy things in this movie. Um, I, I, the ending of a movie where first of all. If I was Ilsa, um, I think at one point she does tell Rick, like, he's become somebody else. Because, like, I could have told the man I knew in Paris, but not this man, about, like, why she didn't get on the train with him. Yeah, that guy was, the Humphrey Bogart that talked to her in Casablanca, Casablanca version of him, of Rick Blaine, was, um, if I was her, I'd be like, I am... I dodged a bullet. Got my husband. Bye. <laughs> Instead, it seemed like... I mean... I don't know how... It's just... Her husband is such a great guy. I feel bad for him that his wife doesn't really love him. Well, uh... Well, doesn't love him as much as she loves right. Humphrey Bogart's character. Right. Um, but he's not aware of that. And he's totally aware of it. Like he had a conversation. Um, He's aware that they had a prior relationship when she thought that he was dead. He doesn't know. He's aware that they're both in love with the same woman. He knows that Rick is in love with his wife, yes. He doesn't realize that his wife is still in love with Rick or that she's more in love with Rick than she is with him. I still feel bad for him. He's like this. He gets the girl. Yeah, but I don't, he was, that, the husband's character, just his integrity and his character as a person in the film seemed to be, if he knew she would be happier with someone else, she, he would say, go stay here with Fort Blaine. I don't know if he would use the guy's full name, <laughs> but he didn't seem like he would as much as he loved her, I think like he would still put her in front of him. Like he put everybody in front of him. Sure. You know, he's like this war hero. How could you not love this guy who escaped from like a concentration camp and was like single handedly like the biggest pain in the butt 
to to Nazi Germany, at least the way the movie portrayed him. You know, be like, heck yes, that's my husband. But a fling with Rick Blaine in Paris. It changes everything. Well, yeah, uh, but, uh, you know, she had that speech about, you know, she grew up sort of worshipping Victor and had this huge amount of respect uh, and uh, had that line about these feelings that she had for him that she assumed uh, was love. Um, and the implication being that when she met Rick, she realized it wasn't actually love. It was, you know, some kind of intense admiration for him and for the work he was doing, but it wasn't actually love because now that she's actually felt that for Rick, she realizes that's not the way she felt about her husband. Um, but, um, uh, uh, you know, Rick, because of uh, his perception of the events in Paris and the uh, what he assumed at least was a betrayal from Ilsa leaving him, um, became this kind of hardened cynic. Uh, but by the end of the film, he was back to being similar to Victor. Um, you know, this self-sacrificing idealist who gave up the woman that he loved for her sake, for Victor's sake, for the war's sake. Um, so, I mean, they're not entirely different. It's just that Bogart's a lot more charismatic. Um, carrying on from the end, it does appear as though Captain Renault is going to give up his position and go with Rick on to, I don't know, standing up for the poor or the... Well, they're going to be involved with, uh, I, I don't know if they're going to be fighting for Free France, which is, you know, the sort of uh, government in exile after France signed the armistice. Right, but it does seem like that character also had a lot of, I mean, you talk about... Rick Blaine <clears throat> turning into Victor, turned man like, but I mean, there's a lot there that he made that decision kind of seem pretty quickly. Like he was sort of, it was like he was waiting for uh, a reason for Rick to spring into action, and then he could uh, follow suit. Um, which there may be like a propaganda element to that as well, like. Um, Europe is just waiting for America to be involved in oh, yes, World War II to come and save the day. And Let's focus in on a character that I don't know if many people would. Sam. What the heck? We need a story about him because he, he notices Ilsa as soon as she walks in the door. They obviously have a history. At one point when uh, the fat cat... Other cafe owner, I cannot think of his name. Uh, well, Sydney Greenstreet is the actor. Yeah, at one point, you know, he's trying to take him away, more money. And it, it's just clear that he's like, I'm with Rick. And he played in Rick's cafe in Paris, and he's playing in Rick's cafe in Casablanca. Like, how long have they been buddies? And is Rick going to get Sam to continue? Like, is Sam just now going to work at... Rick's Americana Cafe for Fat Cat? No, he made arrangements with Sydney Greenstreet um, prior to the events at the airport because he knew one way or the other um, Rick's Cafe was... Uh, if I remember right, he like basically sold Rick's Cafe yeah, to Sydney Greenstreet and 
um, Sam was just part of that transaction. Like, Sam was going to stay there at Rick's Cafe. It's not Rude. like he was kind of... Sam wouldn't want to. Sam well, didn't want to work for Sydney Green Street. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Whatever the guy's name was. At that point, Bogart probably assumed that he was going to be captured and sent to a concentration camp. I mean, it's not like he was in a position right. to say, so, hey, Sam, come along. Rude. But I would have hoped that they would have shown him telling Sam. I would assume he did tell Sam. I'm assuming he did. It just would have been nice to have shown it. Like, I mean, he stuck with him from Paris to Casablanca and stuck with him through other offers, even in Casablanca. It just seemed like, uh, how did they meet? How did he become his piano player? And um, he also... I would think before Captain Ono showed up was Sam's closest friend. He seemed to know him better. He knew that he was sitting around drinking and thinking about Elsa and he was trying to help him out there and he didn't want to play um oh as my, time goes as by. time goes by. Um you know, I it just seemed like he actually was a good friend. He actually cared about Rick. So I I would have liked to have seen that friendship, that conversation, um a bit more maybe delved into. Um, speaking of Sidney Graham's character, Green Street. I, oh, Sidney Green Street. Why did I call him Graham? You should know. You're my husband. Why? Um, let's maybe sidebar over to a Simpsons reference that I don't think many people would know is a reference to him. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I can't divulge information about that customer's secret illegal account. Oh, crap. I shouldn't have said it was a customer. Oh, crap. I shouldn't have said it was a secret. Oh, crap. I certainly shouldn't have said it was illegal. Ah, it's too hot today. Um, I just think it's interesting to note that that is a reference to his character because I wouldn't have picked that up and... Until you told me, and I think in a recent conversation we had, that you even said that you wouldn't have picked up that that reference I'm was there. I'm not sure if I would have or not. I, I don't know if it's specifically a reference to his character in Casablanca or if it's just a reference to that actor, but he is fanning himself right. the way he does in Casablanca. In Casablanca. So, and that's his most famous role, so I would assume it's But I thought drawing. you said that in one of the commentaries for The Simpsons, which that was from The Simpsons. Uh, the episode where um, Bart gets a check from Krusty the Clown and ends up getting him uh, in trouble for tax evasion with the American government. I don't know the name of the episode, but that's the episode if somebody wants it now. Bart the Fink, I think. Ah, uh, Bart the Fink. Um, I do think it's interesting. Like, when you say it, you can kind of see it, but I feel like you said that they... Said that in a commentary for the episode. Uh, if I remember right, yeah, they said it was a uh, a reference to Sydney Green Street, but I can't remember if it was to his character in Casablanca or just to him, him. in general, him overall. Let's delve into Humphrey Bogart. Would you say that this is his most famous film, and where does this fall in his his career? Uh, this is sort of the role that kind of cemented him as a superstar leading man. Um, I would say it is his most famous film. He, he I mean, The Maltese Falcon is very famous. Uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre is very famous. Um, but I, I think this is just one of those kind of transcendent movies that everybody knows. Even if they haven't seen it, they 
know what it is. They know basically what it's about. They've heard a million lines from it. Um, so Bogart started his career in the early 30s um, and really didn't have a whole lot of success at first. And his career was kind of floundering by the mid-30s. Um, and he, uh, he was in a play called The Petrified Forest, which was pretty successful. Um, he, uh, plays a gangster in that. The, the story is kind of about this group of gangsters that hole up in this little gas station out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and he plays the lead gangster, Duke Mantee. Um, the main, so he's sort of the villain in that, but it's a more complex role than just being a villain. Um, but anyway, Leslie Howard, who was a, a very successful actor at the time, not super well-known now, he's best known for uh, Gone with the Wind. He was in Gone with the Wind. And oh, yes, he was the love in Ashley. Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 yes. Um, but at, at any rate, um, Warner Brothers was going to make a movie out of the play, and Leslie Howard was in the play along with Bogart, and so they were going to cast Leslie Howard in the same role that he played in the theater production um but bogart was basically unknown at the time and they wanted to cast somebody that um had more of a profile but leslie howard refused to do the movie unless they cast bogart um and so they reluctantly cast bogart and it was a huge hit and kind of launched his career as a character actor everybody needs a leslie howard in their life yep bogart um felt so indebted to him that uh he named his kid Leslie. Uh, oh, really? As a oh, that's yep. cool. Um, but anyway, uh, he then spent like the next five years as a very successful character actor. Uh, he played a number of kind of weird, off the wall type roles, like some mad scientist in Doctor X, and uh, um, I think he played uh, in a, I think in an Errol Flynn western. Uh, he played like a Mexican. Uh, cowboy, I guess. Really? Yeah. Um, wow. How, like with like, with a Spanish accent. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cringe. Yeah, but he mostly played uh, sort of gangster roles. Um, he does look like a gangster. You know what I mean? Like that Robert De Niro type of gangster. Yeah, and that was kind of established with the Petrified Forest, which is the first thing most people really noticed him in. And so it kind of established his... That's weird. Type. I wouldn't have... I'm not familiar with those works, so I would I would just... Humphrey Bogart, to me, would be like the Leslie Bacall movies in Casablanca. Lauren Bacall. Lauren yeah. Bacall. Yeah, Leslie's well, now in my head. It's weird because... Everybody's Leslie. Yeah, he was this very visible character actor who played these very different kinds of roles. Um for five or six years, which doesn't sound like a long time now, but in those days when they were churning out three or four movies a year, um, I mean, he did a lot of roles like that, and audiences knew who he was. I mean, I can't think of another actor who was that successful as a character actor, and then suddenly, uh, midlife, was converted into a leading man to the same kind of scale that... I'm just going to throw her out here. Maybe not. You could say Jennifer Aniston. Uh, I mean, she was Rachel forever. That's a totally and then different kind of thing, though. Big Hollywood star. Yeah, but she was already in movies when she was doing Friends. Okay, never mind. I was just throwing it out, just batting it. Well, I wasn't batting it. I was going to see if you would bat it, but it fell. And she wasn't really there. a character actor, she was a TV actor. 
she was Rachel. Come on. I feel like that happens a lot when you're on a sitcom. You, you're like that character and then you don't get out you get from that. Cast. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not exactly the same, but I thought there was maybe a parallel there. She might be the Humphrey Bogart of, I don't know what she is. There's Gen a comparison X. I was not expecting on this episode. There we Humphrey go. Bogart. She's, she's the Humphrey Bogart of our generation. <laughs> of someone's generation. Yeah. Um, okay, well now let's, let's turn it a little bit toward um, Bergman and her career. This is her first film. No, she had a oh, career. She was already known. Well, she was. Uh, um, I mean, she had a career in Sweden, and um, you know had achieved some success there. And she was in a Swedish film called Intermezzo, um, which Hollywood then remade, and they cast her in the same role. Uh, my understanding is she didn't even speak English at the time. Like, really? Yeah. Uh, like, literally, like, Casablanca, she seems like she's fluent in English. Yeah. I don't know if she was by that point or not, but she literally had just started learning English, like, two years prior, two or three years earlier. See, it has been, one of my goals in life is to learn another language, which if I actually dedicated enough of an effort toward it, it's totally achievable. So, two years to me, to learn English just seems incredible for an adult, you know, like a grown adult that already has a language under their belt. She probably spoke four languages, you know, coming from Sweden. I'm sure she knew other languages. Yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy to um, think about that. I mean, she may not have been fluent and may have been... It certainly didn't sound like she was speaking her lines phonetically or anything like that. Right, so. you know, because I know that there's... There's sometimes there's American actors that are that speak French or say French, and then I sounds fine to me because I don't speak French. So I'm like, oh, they're speaking French, but a French right, person's like, oh, that like, is their this is not their first language. Where I didn't know that when her character was speaking, I would never have said she didn't learn this as her first language. Um, totally thought she was uh, American, except she was American in the film but actually i'm not sure now on the film is ilsa american no i don't think she's american uh i is victor no uh victor is uh czech resistance mm. so i'm actually not positive what ilsa's nationality is supposed to be um but ingrid bergman herself is swedish gotcha i guess i assumed her character was because i guess i thought when that was my connection that she had to rick and paris and how they got so close so quickly like we really don't know how long they were in paris together but it seems i don't think it was very long like yeah like a short amount of time so it does seem like it happened pretty fast this love affair then she finds out her husband's alive and she ditches him um however i think i just kind of rope this whole conversation back to her character and we were talking about her. So this was not her first film, but no, not it her might first have been film. her first American. No, because you said she came over to the... the yeah, she had done... I, I think she came over to Hollywood in like 1940. So she had been here for two or three years by that point. Um, but uh, And so she was already pretty well known. Um, any friendships that lasted because of the film? Like, did were her and Humphrey Bogart good friends? Uh, no. As far as I know, they weren't. And Ingrid Bergman um, did not seem especially 
um, uh, I don't know, fond of the movie. Like, uh, I don't think she had anything against it, but it took on this outsized kind of role in her career. Like, you know, everybody kind of associated her with Casablanca. And um, I don't think that, like, she had some kind of disparaging comments about how, you know, all anybody ever wants to talk about is that movie she made with Bogart, you know? Wow. Um, I so. can understand that. I mean, uh, I guess if you're, uh, you know, you're an actress and you that's your passion and you want to make films, that would, I mean, you're not going to make it again. <laughs> if that's all anybody wants to talk about, then you would want it to move on and start having more more attention to other works that you're working on currently. Yeah, and... But what an honor that to be a part of something so big. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, um, you know, I, I, maybe she had some kind of um, affinity for it, but it sounds like she had a little bit of least resentment about how sort of famous it was and how it kind of overshadowed her other work. Plus, you know, she was also European, and the film was very much from an American perspective, right. and so it may not have meant as much to her as it does to, you know, a lot of Americans. That's a good point. Did she go on to have any children named Leslie? <laughs> uh, not. Um, she did have uh, um, a child with... Um, oh, man, I'm blanking. Uh, Rossellini... Um, Isabella Rossellini. Ooh, I love the name. Yeah. Oh, nice. Who's an actress. She was in Blue Velvet. Was she? Oh, well, then we'll have to watch that movie at some point and, and uh, talk about Ingrid Bergman's daughter. And, like, there's Isabella. Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, I think that uh, we've kind of covered everything. Do you feel like there's any anything that you would like to talk about? Like, any... Thing you felt like was missing? Uh, no, I would just say to sort of wrap up, um, you know, obviously Casablanca has had this massive impact and continues to have this massive uh, presence in pop culture. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, like if you try and define its legacy, like what exactly is it? Um, for me, um, I see Casablanca as this sort of as like the archetypal classic Hollywood movie, which is kind of a grandiose thing to say. It's like, you know, reducing classic Hollywood to a single film, um, which is kind of preposterous. But what I mean by that is um, the studio system, like at its best, at its height, was this sort of assembly line for creating movies. And not all of them were good. A lot of them weren't, but a lot of them were. And... Um, Casablanca was the product of the studio system in a way that certain other movies, like great movies from the time, weren't. You know, these kind of auteurist movies. Like Citizen Kane is not really a product of the studio system, even though it came out of it. You know, it's an Orson Welles movie. You know, uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie is an Alfred Hitchcock movie. A John Ford movie is a John Ford movie. Casablanca is a Hollywood movie. You know, it's this collaborative effort. Um, you know, they bought the film rights to that stage production. It was assigned to a scriptwriter. They... Uh, hired a kind of journeyman director, a really talented craftsman, Michael Curtiz, but he's not really like this visionary auteur the way like a John Ford or Alfred Hitchcock is. Um, you know, they just assigned all these pieces 
And through this weird kind of alchemy, it became this kind of transcendent work of art. Yeah, I would agree. It also um, makes it somewhat disappointing. And in 2017, we did take a trip out to L.A. in part to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the film. And I think I was slightly disappointed in the lack that Hollywood had. Uh, It just, we took a tour of the studio and saw a lot. Which studio was that? Which one was the studio that had the, was that Warner Brothers studio? Warner Brothers, we took the tour. We also did the Universal. Yeah, but Warner Brothers was the one that they showed the, the little crumbly piece of a building that had been where it was filmed. And then when we got to go see the building that had all of the um, props, there was only like two props left over from the film. So so I think it was just a little bit like, this is their 75th anniversary and that nobody did anything. And they don't have a lot left over. Like, I don't know why there was a lot of props if they just sold a bunch of the... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the movie was really successful right from the get-go, but it's not like it was immediately recognized as this... this... iconic film. Right. Or like you it, should preserve something. Yeah, it won Best Picture at the Oscars. Uh, you know, I think it did really well commercially, but it wasn't like, oh, this is the greatest movie ever made. Uh, we need to preserve everything that was... I mean, that's kind of what I'm talking about. It was kind of a programmer. It was sort of this run-of-the-mill production that... Uh, almost by accident, it seems like, just turned out to be uh, this kind of miracle, this wonderful movie that people appreciated at the time, but um, has just kind of grown in stature as the years have progressed. Well, if you're a big film, if you're a big film, if you're a big film out there, if you're a big fan of the film, you should know going to Hollywood and expecting to see a lot of memorabilia from the film is is not going to happen. But... You can travel to Casablanca, and there is a Rick's Cafe that is a a nod to the film. So there's that. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Well, I think that that covers it. I think this was a good first podcast. Hope you guys, whoever's listening, decide to come back. And if nothing else, then our children and grandchildren can listen to these while they watch the films that we used to watch. Absolutely.